Legend Names Podcast. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Games and Names Podcast, a place where we talk with different experts from game dev industry and discuss their experience as well as professional stories. In other words, we focus on games and people in them. My name is Tan. I'm your usual host and also VP of product at AppMagic, an analytical service for analyzing mobile markets and gaining actionable insights. Today we've got a very interesting topic to discuss, and for that we've introduced two experts. So let me introduce them as well. In the left corner we've got Daniel. Daniel Ahmed, Director of Research and Insights at Nika Partners, the best provider of games market intelligence on Asia and the Middle East. Daniel, welcome. Thank you for the welcome, Stan. Great to be here. And in the right corner, we've got Kirill, the business development specialist from AppMagic. Kirill, glad you've joined us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So guys, first of all, it's really great that we all gathered here today. And to warm up, I want to ask you several questions. And of course, I will answer them as well, just you know, to get the gears going and also to know each other better. And the next question will be about the passion side. So what drives you? What makes you love this work? Why do you work in this industry? Krill, I'm really curious about your answer. That's a tough one. Yeah, just, you know, making people happy, helping them understand the market better and making them better versions of themselves. This is always a good driver, a good motivation for me. And so, yeah, it's just basically for me, it's, it's helping people understand what they do better. It's always a, a good thing to do. And I think that's the main kind of a driver for me. So yeah. Sounds good. Thank you. Daniel? Yeah, I, I would agree. And I absolutely have that balance in place, I think, between really enjoying digging into all the data that we have, being able to kind of go through just raw data sets and visualize as I need to, having that passion for gaming as a whole, getting hands-on with the games, playing them, understanding a bit how they work. And then that third aspect of being able to communicate what I understand or what I've learned from the research I've done to the clients that we work with on a daily basis and in my team as well. It's all these kind of passions combined together and it's an ongoing experience for me. Nice. That sounds really nice. Once again, from my side, I think video games are one of my favorite media. So I really love books, I really love cinema, I love music. And video games is just another type of interacting with the world. And there are some unique type of interactions that are available for video games and you can't find them in other media. So that's the first one. And secondly, and I think here my teaching experience really just pushes me, I really love being able to explain difficult things, difficult insights with simple language. So there is some kind of a magic in it. And that's what I especially love in my current job. So it's an opportunity to find some interesting things in the numbers, in the graphs, in the stats, taking them out, rebuilding them and shaping them the way anyone can understand them. I think that's the real magic in the process. So yeah, that was a good intro. And now let us jump to the topic itself. So today we will talk about mobile genres that have been growing steadily despite the overall industry decline. So we've all heard that the industry was going down last year for the first time ever. 
but there were niches that were growing despite this trend. And we will especially focus on those niches that are not too difficult to enter and doesn't require a crazy amount of resources or expertise or both, maybe. So I think we might call this episode as the most promising genres of mobile games, of mobile niches in 2023, or the niches that you really have to have a look at, because maybe you should develop a game in one of these genres. And I think that's the main focus today will be on casual games and casual genres, because they've got the perfect balance, the sweet spot of uh, risk and success ratio. And Kirill will talk primarily about the Western region, while Daniel can share some insights on Eastern markets as well. So without any further ado, let's dig in and start with casual subgenres. I think the first candidate here obviously will be Merge 2 Games, one of the most interesting, one of the most growing niches right now. Kirill, what do you have to share about Merge Games? Yeah, so Merge 2 Games were just huge in 2021. They went around 100% which is just crazy. Well, you know, in general, the market, the gaming market was going down like 5%. Some genres were down 10%. Merge to games were up 100%, going from like $7 million, $8 million in revenue per month to $15 million per month, which is, which is crazy. Wow. It is, it is, the it best is part crazy is, indeed. So it's like, it's like doubling. Yeah, it's basically doubling. And the best part is it was not you know, driven by a single game or two titles. It was mainly new games that, that came out in 2022 or late 2021. So think games like Chef Merge or a game like Gossip Harbor, the game like Seaside Escape. They all came out in 2022 and they're already like pushing the envelope and just making the market go up, which is always a good sign for any publisher to look at the market. Because if you look at, say, I don't want to call names, I don't want to say anything bad about any market, but say, <laughs> match the market you look at this market and then you see it's even though it's not going up it's not going down it's not going up it's kind of a stagnating but mm -hmm. it's mainly taken by three four titles candy crush mm -hmm. homescapes gardenscapes and then royal match and nothing's actually happening in terms of like new games breaking in becoming new success stories it's pretty static in that sense but in merge two games they were like shifting and moving and changing directions all throughout the year which is always a good sign that's great. Daniel, do you have anything to add about merge games on the Asian market? I think I can mirror a lot of that early conversation around just the fact that it's grown so much between 2021 and 2022. It was really a huge year for merge games overall globally, especially merge two games, for example. And so if we look at revenue figures, it was very similar in that there was this doubling again in Asia, especially the markets that we cover between 2021 and 2022. Mm -hmm. I think to name drop a few, Merge Mansion, Merge County were probably the two that really sort of drove a lot of that growth and performed well, especially mm -hmm. in East Asia, Japan, South Korea. That's where we're seeing a lot of the, the growth being driven initially. And then, you know, we can kind of move into the hybrid conversation as well and look at how Merge sort of mechanics are being applied to different titles. Top War would be uh, an example of one that's been uh, operating for some time now. And I think that mm -hmm. the genre as a whole is really appealing to not just casual gamers, but gamers that have been able to sort of play mid-core games and, and get a taste of, of more complex mechanics. And then having those sort mm -hmm. of hybrid titles where merge is being attached to, again, a strategy game in the case of Top War, it's really allowing one sort of those 
players that have experienced midcore games to, to onboard a lot easily while still keeping that casual audience in place. Mm-hmm. And then two, I would say that it can help with UA in some capacity, costs, that is UA costs, and that it's a lot easier to find users that are used to, again, that traditional genre with the merge mechanics built on top. Yeah, actually, on the Western market, we've also seen different hybrid mechanics, including merge games. So I think the very same thing is happening here. So we've already seen different examples of merge with expeditions, of merge with idle tycoons. And we, of course, will talk about idle tycoons later as well. And also we've seen implementations of merge into match three as live ops and events, because in its core, very simple, yet a very comfortable mechanic to fit into different casual genres. So I guess we will be seeing more and more different hybrid implementations of merge into other games in the future. That's my stake, that's my bet. And also I want to highlight the Gossip Harbor part that Kirill mentioned because we've been digging a lot about merge lately, merge two games, and we've seen a very interesting case because Gossip Harbor was a game released after Love and Pies, one of the most famous titles in the merge two genres. And from the scratch, when you start playing the both games, you can see that they're quite the same. They are almost equal, almost clones. Yeah, when you continue, you can see that there is difference in monetization, then there is difference in live ops. So there are not so obvious parts, but on a surface, they're quite the same. And usually in this case, when there is clone game that is very similar to the original, it doesn't perform very well. We have seen lots and lots of examples, especially, for example, Archero. It was a great hit three years ago, and then there was more than, I think, 60 games like Archero clones, and none of them, none of them made it at least as 5% as successful as Archero. And here we can see an example of a successful clone, not just being equally successful, but overcoming the original game. And it is, I think, a unique situation on the market. And later in this episode, we will discuss another example when there appears successful clones of an already existing original. You know, Merge 2, obviously, are very different. And you mentioned that deployed different mechanics, idle tycoons and everything, journey, expedition. But then they also have very different production approach, I'd say. And they're kind of targeting a very different audience, a lot of them. And on one mm-hmm. spectrum, you have Merge Mansion, you have Love and Pies, and especially with, so with Merge Mansion. So those are huge games that are going for, I'd say, puzzle audience. They have a very high production cost. I mean, Merge Mansion, The Mandalorian mm-hmm. is doing ad for you. That's the level you want to you wanna, you wanna <laughs> achieve, right? But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have <laughs> games like Merge Studio, you have Makeover Merge, you have uh, what else? Yeah, th- those Love Paradise. So those are way more simple in terms of production, in terms of gameplay. And they're going for another audience, I feel. Well, even more casual, even like somewhere between hyper casual, hybrid casual, that kind of audience. And that shows in their monetization because the main well, source of money for them, revenue for them is ads. And that's apparent if you look at their like revenue and download charts. So even within the not so you know homogenous merge to games market, you still see different approaches to how you monetize your audience and what is your audience. And yeah, that's all I had. 
It is true, a very good observation. So we can also say that talking about hybrids once again, as Daniel mentioned, there are examples of even merge going into the territory of hyper-casual games. So being as simple as almost hyper-casual and having monetization strategy as hyper-casual with interstitials, with lots of advertising content and not so many in-app purchases. And also Talking about the target audience, we've got a very broad example. There is Medieval Merge, that is a merge game, but for a male audience, with a fantasy RPG, with dragons, with fighting, with your own kingdom that you want to prosper, that you want to defend. So it is another example of merge going very wide. And both from the gameplay perspective, combining different genres, combining different types of niches, and from the audience perspective. And it, it is interesting. It is really interesting. I think there can be a lot of possibilities here as well. Kirill, while you were talking, you've mentioned match three. And yeah, this genre is huge and there is status quo. There are dominating companies in the tops. But if we dig deeper, I think we can see some niches that present an opportunity for developers. Right. Yeah. I guess you're referring to match three tile games, which are kind of a subgenre of match three. And, you know, Damn, you're similar right. in the naming and yeah, they're match three games, but they're way more casual, way more simple to make, way more simple in how they look and how they play. And so that was the, the story of this genre for like the last year, actually. The whole market started out in like 2020, uh, 2021. Around that time, the market came into existence in the form of match triple 3D match tile. So those games that actually look like you playing Mahjong, I guess. I've never played that. But mm -hmm. if you kind of play Mahjong, you just have to select the matching tiles. And that's the whole gameplay. So it's a very relaxing, casual time where you just idly play this game and you relax and that's it. Then in 2021 and late 2021, Zen match came out. The core gameplay was the same. You just, you just match tiles and that's it. But then they added a, a layer of meta gameplay where you decorate because that was the, the rage in 2020, 2021, decorating and doing all, all kinds of stuff. So they added that and instantly became like the market's leaders in terms of revenue, in terms of downloads. They were the, the household name. When you, when you think about match detail games, you think about Zen match. And then this year, why were we talking about this market at all? is because another game kind of came out, tweaked the formula and just, you know, took the market by storm. It was Triple Match 3D. So this time they didn't do anything with the meta gameplay. Instead, they tweaked the core gameplay. So now it's not that relaxing to play. It's not that casual. It's not that <laughs> simple to play. You have a, a countdown. So you actually have to complete a level in a certain amount of time. And then you also have missions. So you have orders. Um, yeah, just reminiscing about the merge games we just spoke about. You have orders now. Mm -hmm. So now you have to fulfill those orders. And the difficult part is you have a countdown. You have to fulfill those orders. And you have a bunch of different, you know, visual maps on the screen, which you have to go through in order to find your object that you're looking for. So yeah, uh, now it's more difficult to play. The you know you can fail, you can lose. You'll have to start again a lot of the time, and that's why they added power ups, they added additional lives, so you can purchase all of that. And obviously, the game's just sitting at just mind boggling like ten million dollars per month in revenue, and their RPD of like eleven dollars in tier one West countries, which oh is again eleven dollars in, in RPD. Yeah, that's a lot. You, you can buy a lot of audience. You, you can compete with like Real Match at this level of RPD. So it just goes to show how how well they they thought out the whole monetization and the whole gameplay process, especially if compared like to older titles, say Tile Master 3D, 
this game, you do have a countdown. So you have 25 minutes for one level. I mean, my cat would have completed <laughs> the level in 25 minutes. So yeah, it's just, that's what they did with the market. While you were talking, I just had a thought that it's really surprising we haven't seen a battle royale with decorating part of gameplay in 2021, like taking the best from the both worlds of the both trends. By the way, I was thinking, is there a chance that match three tiles as a niche, as a genre, came from the Asian region? Because you've mentioned Manjong, and I think, yeah, the core gameplay is pretty much similar. So, Daniel, do you have any thoughts on that? Given the similarities to, to Mahjong, that's one reason certainly why it would appeal more to gamers in that region. I'm just sort of to back out a bit, and then I'll go back to, to tile that tile subgenre in a bit. We've generally seen is that Match 3 as a whole as sort of a super genre. Uh, had a mixed year pretty much across Asia and MENA last year in, in 2022, that is. There were legacy titles that did perform well, and they were more sort of Candy Crush Saga or Royal Match, for example. And they were predominantly doing better in Southeast Asia or South Asia or kind of less mature markets compared to the, to the more mature markets. But the games that did actually do really well in more mature markets were these tile games, actually tile games. And so Triple Match 3D being one of them. And so it sort of timer feature, the, the additional complexity in the game was one of the reasons why it did so well. And it's one of the, the broader reasons why a lot of games tend to find success in Asia. They're taking this sort of simple, hyper-casual title, but they're either merging it or sort of having a hybrid genre with something that's more core or adding in just on a, on a simple level, more core mechanics, more complex mechanics. And it's appealing to that audience that's really already kind of established themselves as playing mid-core games, while not also alienating the casual gamer base that's there. And so that's generally why we're seeing Match 3 tile games actually perform quite well in the East. Sounds good. Thank you for this insight. So yeah, coming back to our casual genres and casual niches, we also mentioned one more niche I think we should discuss, and I'm talking about Idle Tycoons. As far as I know, they were not growing so big last year, and not all the titles were successful yet. We want to discuss this niche, and I think, Kirill, you can share why. Yeah, the reason why is because, like you mentioned, the market did not show a very you know promising growth in 2022, especially compared to 2021 and 2022, when the market was just going up constantly going like double digits every single month. But then this year was more quiet, more stable, I'd say. Mm -hmm. But then the reason we're talking about this is a lot of new titles came out in 2022, a lot of new Idol Tycoon games. And a lot of them, and when I say a lot, I mean like maybe 10% of them became well, kind of successful. So they actually managed to earn some money to probably be ROI positive. So that's a good thing. And so the that's thing, the sign, main yeah. thing for me, yeah, that's a good sign. The main thing for <laughs> me with, with the whole Idol Tycoon games is when you look at, say, merge games, you also have, say, 200 games that came out, four of them became successful. And then they all earned, say, millions of dollars, right? And then after that, the fifth game, the fifth biggest game only earned $200,000. The drop is very steep. And you're either the formula winner takes it all, mm -hmm. is very, you know, it's all about Merge 2 games and Nash Day games. Well, here with Idol Tycoon games, the revenues and, well, I'd say the success is evenly spread throughout the market. So the biggest game makes $3.5 million. The second biggest game make $1.2 million. The 12th biggest game, biggest game on the market makes $400,000. So it's more evenly spread. There's no like steep decline and nothing like that. So even... If you're not going to be the biggest game on the market, 
mm-hmm. finding your audience, your core audience, will allow you to make some money and not just be overshadowed by those giants, those two or three titles that are dominating the market. So that's the, the biggest and the best thing about Idol Tycoon Games for me, that I think even though the you know reward to risk ratio is not the highest, but then the mm-hmm. rewards you get, you can actually get some rewards. Because if you go to <laughs> and make a merge two game and your game is not successful, you'll make zero dollars. And here you make a game, it's not the most successful game out there, but you'll still be making some money off of that. So, well, it's better than doing nothing, than making nothing, I mean. So, yeah, that's why we aren't talking about this market at all. So, in the cases when you're developers and you want to play it safe, this is an option that you might want to consider. I mean, yeah, because we've seen cases where people, where teams of like five people made a successful idle take-home game in a matter of months. And when I say successful, I mean very successful idle take-home game in a matter of months. And that's a team of five people. So uh, it's not crazy high production costs or anything. Yeah, of course, you, you ought to have some expertise. You have to be professionals. We're not talking about brand new, fresh uh, newcomers out of the university who are dreaming about having a successful mobile game. So I'm pretty sure as far as I know, these five guys, they were super professional. But at the same time, as you've mentioned, you don't need a lot of resources. You don't need a lot of production costs in order to create a very successful game in Idle Tycoon's genre. Daniel, what is going with Idle Tycoons in the Asian region? Is it a big thing? So what is quite interesting is that the genre as a whole hasn't performed as well in Asia as it has in the West. And that's despite the fact that if you look at games like Idle Mafia, for example, which is from Century Games, a Chinese developer and publisher. A lot of the games are developed by Chinese companies or Asian companies. But again, going back to Idol Mafia, 54% of its revenue is from the US. So it is very much a, a genre that's really taken off in the West. And that's not to say that Idol games mm-hmm. don't perform well in Asia or that they, they can't find success there. But I think it goes back to my previous point of when they do find success, it's usually because they have some additional complexity or core mechanics built in. They're based around like an RPG type of of game to begin with. Or they have a theme or art style that fits in with the Asian market. A lot of the games that are really successful in the global market right now within the idol tycoon genre generally tend to appeal to Western gamer tastes, and they've usually been designed with that in mind. Whereas we don't really see anything that is specifically designed around a historical or mythological theme uh, that might appeal to gamers in Asia. There's no real kind of cartoon anime style, uh, art style, that could appeal to gamers in Japan, for example. So I think that's one reason as to why it hasn't really grown there in the same way it has in the West. But then that also mm-hmm. represents an opportunity for developers to look at what's making idle tycoon games successful currently in the West, what's making idle RPG games or idle games in general popular in the East, and then trying to see how they can develop games within that genre to appeal to the local audiences there. Sounds good. Actually, sounds like a very big opportunity for both Western and Eastern developers. So guys out there, if you listen to our podcast, then this is an option for you. And going back to to our enumeration of the genres that uh, you really pay attention to this year. There is one more niche, and I can't say that it is a genre of its own, though it is definitely a niche, and it has grown big. And interestingly, it was big both for the Western and Eastern market, as far as I know. And I'm talking about the boom hit and the phenomena of Survivor.io. Survivor has a very, very addictive core gameplay, a very well thought about 
matter and pretty good progress. So I'm really wondering what was the success, if there was any, with Survivor and its niche. I'm talking about clones of Survivor in the Eastern market. Daniel, do you have any info on that? Yes. The game has, has absolutely been a huge hit in Asia as a whole. I think if we look at the 14 markets that we cover, that includes Mena as well, the revenue generated by that game last year is over 70% in those 14 markets. So just on the face of it, this is a hugely successful game. I think China is probably the largest market for revenue, you have to double check. But what's interesting is that they really kept sort of that simplicity and casual gameplay that they're known for developing in the past, with Archer, for example. Mm-hmm. And then they've really added on top these light roguelike elements and additional, again, some complex elements, but but it, it's been done in such a way that really the onboarding experience is really great for both casual and mid-core players. And that core experience has really keep the players engaged and, and in the game over the long term. So I think first point, Survival IO, huge in Asia already, and it's really building up the Survival Arena uh, sort of genre as a whole. And then... I think what's interesting as well is that if we just look at Survivor IO on its own as a casual game, it is one of the top casual games by revenue in Asia right now. Mm-hmm. So it really is dominating not just within its own subgenre, but within the overall sort of casual game genre as a whole. And then not to be kind of repeating myself over and over, but it really does go back to the fact that they've been able to use these more advanced mechanics right, within this simple concept to provide a somewhat more complex and more core experience. And that is what also helps it perform really well in Asia. Mm-hmm. So for the Asian region, at least, it's once again the story not of simplification, but rather going more difficult, more yeah. intricate, and thus being more successful in the end. It doesn't always need to be more difficult. Obviously, um, <laughs> not the case in this game. But it, it's more a case of having multiple types of gameplay elements or uh, layers on top of the game that players can engage mm-hmm. with as they see fit. And what we found is that players in Asia are more receptive to basically all those different game modes or different ways of playing or different mechanics. And that that is more likely for them to... So those elements are more like make it more likely uh, for them to stick with the game over the long term. Sounds reasonable. Kirill, what was going with Survivor and its hitness, its hitness on the Western market? I mean, you know the story. It just took off. <laughs> Everyone was playing it. Everyone was talking about it, and a lot of people are still playing the game because it's addictive. It's you know fairly complex. It's fairly deep and thought out. So, well, the story is it's a huge success. It's a huge game. I think it's more successful. Already than Archer, I guess so. But it, it'll definitely be more successful. As far than as I Archer. remember, yeah. Especially thinking about the time period, Archer had three years to run, and then Survivor was released last summer, I suppose. So less than yeah. a year. And during this time, I think they almost are equal in their in apps revenue. Not talking about advertising revenue, of course, but from this perspective, yeah, it is more successful, definitely. Yeah. And then you obviously have some, well, other titles trying to imitate their success and play off of their success. You have someone like Lonely Survivor, Heroes versus mm-hmm. Hordes. Those games were fairly successful. Obviously not on par with Survivor IO. That game was in the league of its own. But those games, you know, were fairly successful, a couple of hundred thousand dollars per per month, which is a good result. Uh but yeah, 
in my opinion, the story is always the same. You have Archer, you have Survivor.io, and a lot of developers try to, you know, emulate their success, try to, you know, build off of that. And no one actually manages to overshadow them or even get close to the initial game success ever. So yeah, the story is always the same. That's been the case with this mission. I say that in the case of Survivor, though with the clones, the situation was a bit different. So with Archer, we've seen that lots and lots of clones were released especially when Archero peaked itself, and none of them were really successful. But with Survivor.io, for example, you you were talking about Lonely Survivor, and right now it gains like maybe 10% of a monthly revenue of Survivor.io, which of course is a, a small part, but at the same time, none of the Archero clones even made it to this point. Okay, I think, gentlemen, we've covered the casual genre and we pretty much discussed a lot of insights and available information for the developers out there. So let us try to talk a little bit about hyper-casual genres and about core games as well. Yeah, should we start like hyper-casual games or core games? Whichever you like, guys. Uh, Let's go with hyper-casual first. So let's go first simplified and then go fully into the core. All right. So not going into a lot of details, a lot of numbers and everything. Hypercasual games were down in terms of downloads, obviously, if you do not take like uh, developing countries into consideration. So Western countries, downloads were down. Revenues were obviously, well, no, not actually. Revenues were up, actually. And that's because, as we've seen today with a lot of different genres, uh, like Merge 2 and whatever, the main story of the whole genre, the whole market, the hypercasual market was hybrids and hybrid gameplays, hybrid mechanics and whatever. You have a whole genre pop-up called hybrid casual, which incorporates the hyper casual production approach and, you know, assets and everything. It, it looks like a regular hyper casual game. It is advertised as a regular hyper casual game, but then you, you end up sinking hundreds of hours into the game because it is very complex. It has a lot of depth to it. It's those are big games. I'm talking about something like My Little Universe. They were the first game to actually do that, as far as I know, My Little mm-hmm. Universe. So it's called Idle Arcade. So it's still a hyper casual game, but then you can actually purchase stuff. It's you have some of the purchases in the game, which is awesome. And just yeah, you play it as a usual game. You grind your way to victory. You have different worlds, you have different dimensions and have different mechanics even. So one mechanic is you just dig through stuff, you mine some resources but then you can also fight you can also you know upgrade your weapons and your uh, armor and everything it's fairly complex and that's why the revenues of the market were up because a lot more publishers and games started implementing the in-app purchases in their games and that's from what i've heard and from what i you know heard from people in the industry this is going to be the future for hyper casual games as we know it so they will try to get more casual it's not, it's not going to be hyper casual anymore it's going to be super casual or a lightly bit <laughs> less casual something like that it's not gonna be hyper casual anymore because it well it doesn't work anymore so it seems like we'll end up somewhere in between because of the casual games going down and simplifying and hyper casual games going up and somewhere in between apparently they will meet well yeah we'll see about that the only difference you'll see right now is obviously the visuals so hyper casual mm-hmm. games they're still using those assets that you can think of low poly and everything and casual games that tend to have more art style more class to them so yeah that's the big difference as of right now one of the ways to tell them apart yeah what was going with the hyper casual games on the eastern market good question i think that 
the journey the hyper casual has taken has been quite interesting because we, we saw the initial both then the skepticism around it and then with COVID-19 obviously there was this huge boost in, in just downloads across the board uh, where, which hyper casual really benefited from and when now in 2023 or 2022 to the back uh, seeing the uh, decline post-COVID as we return to normalization, but then also the impact from uh, Apple changes, right, with IDFA. And so if you look at 2022 overall in Asia, men are the 14 markets that we look at specifically, revenue and downloads were down over 50% year over year, both for, for both across revenue and uh and downloads. And so, yes, we continue to see this this ongoing shift towards mid-core games or, or sort of hybrid games. Yes, we continue to see competition, even from outside gaming, like short video platforms, kind of take time mm. away from hyper-casual to some extent. And what is remaining of hyper-casual is games that launched a year or two or three or four years ago, as opposed to something that really came out in 2022 and was a, a huge hit. And so, yes, I, I would echo obviously what Kuro said and that we are seeing this shifts towards uh, in-app purchases or hybrid monetization being used in hyper-casual games just across the board in order to increase monetization within those games. And I think mm-hmm. that is ultimately what we'll see happen a lot more, especially in Asia, where again, going back to my previous point, the addition of those sort of more complex mechanics and hybrid monetization elements is a lot more accepted and leads to greater engagement in those games. It's... Really interesting. You've mentioned competitors among short video platforms like TikTok, as far as yeah. as far as I've heard. Because uh, as far as I know, right now, hyper casual games they look for the trends on the TikTok primarily, and they try to use it for their user acquisition. So making games like shave the beard, pop the pimple, I don't know, or organize the stuff in your kitchen. You've definitely seen it. Or maybe cut the soap, sure. maybe make some kind of a sculpture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of these were TikTok trends and they were used by hyper-casual games. So it's pretty funny that it's going vice versa right now with these short video platforms competing with hyper-casual games for the same audience. It's this interesting dynamic where you have viral success stories that you'll see from hyper-casual games that really perform well on short video platforms like TikTok both through just general ads, but also through influencers or creators playing those games as well. But at the same time, there is this element where ever we've been conducting a survey over the past few years, and we say, okay, well, where are you actually spending your time relative to gaming and, and beyond? The amount of time being spent within short video applications like TikTok is ever increasing, whereas mm-hmm. casual and hyper-casual to some extent, and again, this is only in Asia more so, is seeing a slight decline. So it's very hard to say exactly whether people are staying within TikTok and whether mini games in the future, for example, would address that, uh, like it has in China to some extent. But the overall trend is that more time in short video, less time in hyper casual. That's a really good insight. Thank you for that, Daniel. I never knew it. So it's a really good one. All right. So we've covered casual, we've covered hyper casual, and I think that's the best time to go for core. I think. Oh yeah, it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> if you may. Yeah, it was not the best year for core games, even though a lot of you know huge titles came out that year. It was Diablo it was Marvel Snap, Apex came out that year. On the surface, it looks like it was a good year for the core gaming in general. But mm-hmm. if you look at the numbers, look at the graphs, it was all going down in downloads and revenue in any country, especially in like tier one West countries. And that's, you know, that has to do with a lot of reasons, a lot of factors, one of them being the ATT 
how do you feed the vacation and everything? It's harder to get traffic to buy traffic right now just because you cannot target this very specific audience. Because yeah. with casual games, your potential audience is kind of everyone and anyone. And with core games, obviously not everyone will play strategy game or RPG game or whatever. So you have to be very careful what you go in for and who you're targeting. And that became almost impossible with like the ATT and stuff. And then more general reasons are obviously just the economic downturn, turmoil and recession. And people are just not willing to spend as much as they used to that year. So those are the main reasons why the market was going down. Even though, yeah, a couple of good games came out and everyone loved them. People are still playing Diablo. People are still playing Marvel Snap. People are not playing Apex because he closed it. But yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> still playing unfortunately. those games. Yeah, it was a good game. From what I'm hearing right now, it seems that for the core niche, if you want to go there, you need a very strong IP. So Diablo, Marvel Snap, even Apex, all of them were based on a very big IP that was popular before the mobile game. And of course, I think that's part of the success. Certainly is. It certainly helps with the user acquisition. Having an IP to back you up, it's always, you know, a help. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is true. Like having Nick Fury playing someone in, in your ad is a big thing. Yeah. So, Daniel, I'm really curious. Is the same thing was going on on the Eastern market? So the IP-based games were going strong, but all the rest wasn't so big. Yeah, I think that trend is very true for the Asia and meta markets as a whole. I think what's interesting is that, yes, there's the global macroeconomic environment. Yes, there was Apple's IDFA changes. But also, if you look at China, for example, in a, in a very specific way, uh, regulatory changes there were also one of the reasons as to why the market declined as it did. And so when we look at some specific markets in Asia in depth, Really, it's the compounding of multiple negative factors that led to mm -hmm. the decline in revenue that we saw. And then if we, if we shift our focus and look at some of the more developing markets like India, for example, or Egypt even, what's actually interesting is that they saw on a combined level a growth in revenue, mobile game revenue that is. And India right now is, is still the fastest growing market that we track uh, for mobile games. And so we expect that mm -hmm. to continue growing. So it really was more so the mature markets like Japan, China, for example, where we saw the largest declines. But then in these developing markets, there was a lot of growth still to be had overall. If I look at China specifically, and we look at the new games that launched in 2022 and how successful they were, pretty much all of the top games that launched in 2022 were based on an IP of some kind. So Diablo Immortal launched um, from Blizzard and NetEase in the country. Uh, Microsoft and Tencent released uh, Return to Empire, which is their Age of Empires game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Riot Games and Tencent also released a esports manager game based on the League of Legends IP, and those performed extremely well compared to other new games which didn't have an IP and were in core genres. And then I can also look, for example, to South Korea, and it's, it's the same thing again. The core genres, particularly RPG games, that really performed well were all based on the Lineage IP, which is um, a really popular RPG, well, MMO uh, IP there. And then also Dungeon Fighter from Nexon uh, released a new mobile game mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that performed really well. So no matter which market I go to, and if I look at the top sort of five or 10 grossing games that are core, uh, core genre games, pretty much all of them have an IP attached. And that has really been a secret, a secret over the past year as to how to succeed in these markets within the core genre. Mm -hmm. So it's both having a good, strong IP and targeting for the development regions. So these two can be something that will help with your success 
for going to to the mid core. Yeah, it's not to say that IP that non IP based games don't succeed. They certainly can. But when we look at sort of the, the differences in, in revenue and downloads, having an IP based game certainly gives an advantage over a non IP based game. And it is totally understandable. I think yeah, it is very predictable. But yep, still, it is good to know. Right, I think we've covered all the main trends, all the main genres, and we've shared lots of useful insights, so thank you for that. I'm pretty sure anyone listening to us right now will have a better understanding of which niches to look at in this year and maybe in upcoming years as well. And I've got one last question. This is one question that I am going to ask all of our guests on this podcast. So can you recommend three games. These can be any games, mobile, PC, console, I don't know, Tetris, so whatever you like, and maybe a small description why you think they are worth it. Kirill, if you are ready, if you're up for a challenge, we can start with you. Yeah, sure. Let me just think. Well, the first one should probably be T3 Arena, because I played it a lot. It's a shooter, it's a mobile game, it's kind of mm-hmm. an Overwatch, but for mobile, it's awesome. It's fun, it's easy to play, it's easy to get into, it's easy to spend hundreds of dollars into. So yeah, it's a, overall a good game, recommend playing it. And it's not widely you know, talked about, so maybe more people will play that and yeah, just the developers will get more money. Next Hopefully. up would probably be yeah, a very different game. It's called Into the Breach. It was recently added to the Netflix games library, so now it's available on phones, iPads, and everything. So that's a turn-based tactical strategy, I'd say. So you play as the, the mechs, and you fight off alien insects things. So yeah, it is, it's just, you know, you can kind of play chess, but it mm-hmm. just looks better, and it's more entertaining. <laughs> and then one more is just the game I recently played. It's called Resident Evil. The first game, the first entry in the series, it came out in 1996, and it's just mind blowing how difficult the game is and how <laughs> different it is from like the the gameplay and game design point of view because well other games that came out in 96 include games like super mario 64 it includes like mm-hmm. quake and stuff and then you have resident evil where you have limited inventory space and you have to have an ink paper to save your progress so it was just crazy playing it now is crazy because it used to like more casual experience where you can just quick save anytime you want but in here you have to have a thing in your inventory just to save a game which is just whoa so yeah those are the games i'd recommend playing sounds great i've never known this fact about resident evil the first one in the series, in the franchise. I'm really uh, waiting for Resident Evil 4 Remake to come up this year, because that's one of the original games that I've played, Resident Evil 4. So having big hopes for that one. All right, Daniel, what about you? I'll probably look at two games that I think are important for anyone in the industry to play. First one Mm -hmm. being Marvel Snap. I did really well Mm -hmm. as a collectible card game uh, last year from Second Dinner which is a US-based uh, games company, I think, and uh, published by ByteDance yep. and, and Nuverse, who are Chinese. And so it's interesting to kind of see how that game has been able to simplify the mechanics for mobile compared to traditional collectible card mm-hmm. games or, or failing card games, and the monetization elements in that as well. And it's also interesting to see what, what Second Dinner will do next, but also what ByteDance will do next in terms of their gaming strategy and entering the gaming space, given their huge position with TikTok already in, in sort of the short video space. The second game, and maybe this isn't really a game, but uh, I would say any extraction shooter or extraction kind of looter game. Arena Breakout mm-hmm. is one that comes to mind from Tencent, 
again, Chinese developed game. And this is because it looks like everyone is trying to create this going forward. And a lot of people are betting on this being the next battle royale type of uh, genre where, you know, it really takes off and becomes a genre within its own. And so mm-hmm. uh, Arena Breakout is one that's come out last year in China. It's done fairly well and sort of setting a standard. Escape from Tarkov, of course, being one of the original in that genre. And there is, for most major publishers, a slate of extraction shooter games set to come out over this year. And I think playing those now will give people a good idea of what to expect. And then the, the third would be uh, just a personal game, personal favorite, sorry, uh, which is Wolong, Fallen Dynasty, that came out. It's a mm-hmm. Koei Tecmo RPG game based on the Three Kingdoms period. And this is uh, more to do with my fascination with history and mythology and, in this case, Chinese history. And so I've always been a fan of that type of game, but also the the story and the historical elements behind it. And I've been playing it, mm-hmm. and it, it's good. I would say there's, there's a few things I'd certainly improve, but for me, it's more about the uh, the story and the, the history and the, the theme and, and the, the way it kind of all comes together. Fun fact here, Daniel's Twitter handle is Juga Lang, right? Is that the name of the guy? Yeah. Which is a, a history-based character. It's not a character, it's an actual person. He was like a... I don't even know, he was everything. He was like the inventor of stuff. He was the war commander. He was the governor. And he was just... He's just very famous in like Chinese history and had Chinese literature and everything. He was the big guy for Chinese history. Yeah. So yeah. Sounds like a, a fun fact. I, I just learned that recently. Yeah. <laughs> And then, so the game that I'm playing, uh, Warlong Fallen Dynasty, pretty much based around that exact uh, time period and, and characters and, and uh, people, which is, again, why I'm interested in playing it. Sounds good. I think I should try it. I've seen it on Game Pass, so yes, I should it, definitely give it a try. It's free to play on, on Game Pass. Oh, that is good nice. for you guys. That's good for yeah. Yeah, so uh, going for me, I think my first recommendation will be a mobile as well. I'll go for Wild Rift. So this is the game we definitely have a love-hate relationship with. I think I download it like each half a year. I play for a week, like fully in hours and hours of playing. And then I delete it with some kind of a thought that, you know, maybe I should try drugs instead because at least there is a higher possibility that I will end up more healthy. But I really loved League of Legends back in the day. So when I was in the university playing with my friends, lots of hours spent good times. And I always wondered why they haven't released it on mobiles. And then growing up, working in the gaming industry, seeing all the difficulties inside the process, all the interactions with the UX, UI, I came to a thought, yeah, now I know why they didn't. And then they made it. And the most surprising part for me was that the way it is customized for mobile controls, for mobile platform is just perfect. So it is unbelievable how they've managed to basically give you the same experience, the same feel on absolutely different platform. And at least I think from this perspective, if you work in the game development industry, you should try the game. So that's the first one. The second one should be Outer Wilds. So I can't say it's an oldie, but it's definitely not a brand new title. I think Outer Wilds was released four years ago, maybe five. But it is one of the best games I've played ever in my life with a very exploration-based narrative. And at the same time, the story goes with a scientific hint. So it's a story about going through the space, about exploring different planets, different forms, and unveiling what has happened. And I think one of the, the first 
very important thing about this game is that it is like an onion. So there, there are layers and you can beat it in your first try, basically. There is no progress. There is no things that you will enhance in your hero or your abilities. It's just your knowledge. If you know what is going on, if you know where to go and what to do, you will make it. And the game itself is just the same. You just know more layers of it and you know how to beat it. And secondly, I really love that the plot itself, it's very humanistic. So it's very kind and nice and it's very emotional at the same time with a scientific approach. So it's a very rare thing when you can combine on the one hand something very scientific, very like uh, with a cold mind and numbers. And at the same time, something very emotional, something very irrational and something that is very close to all of us. And that is why I recommend this game to everyone who I meet, basically. So, sorry guys, you got under fire. And the third one, I think I'll go with Inmost. So, it's not a very popular game. It's a game that was released in Apple Arcade a couple of years ago, but it has a very distinctive visual style, so it's pixel-based, but with uh, Lovecraftian motives, which is quite unique. And I know for sure that this game was developed by a very small team, maybe of several members, maybe a couple of, of people there. So when you play this game, you can keep the, that in mind. The game is very small itself, but it is very interesting, very captivating, and I really love the art style. So that will be my third recommendation as for now for today. So I think... That's all with our first episode. To all of you listening to us, thank you for getting to this point. Kirill, Daniel, I really appreciate you coming today and joining us for the first episode ever. It's a big thing. So thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Definitely. I really hope that we will be able to have another talk in the future. And to all of you out there, see you the next episode. Take care and bye.